Another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Friday, September the 29th, 2023, and it's time for an expert counsel question and answer show for the week. I've got a good lineup for you today. Dr. Paul. And Dan McAdams will kick off the Ron Paul Liberty highlights and let you know, you know what, don't worry about your government shutting down. It's going to be okay. It really is. The Ukraine Ukrainians will still get paid. Yeah, like We're actually paying not just for weapons and stuff in Ukraine. We're like paying like benefits and uh, retirement accounts, and, and we're paying the salaries of some of the uh, Ukrainian officials while they're going through this crisis out of the goodness of our heart with our money that they stole from us. And even though we might have services shut down in the United States, don't worry, it's going to be okay. We're still going to pay the Ukrainians because that, that's what's really important in America today. And Chris Rossini over there with part of that team will talk about how the government scientifically ruling society, the rule by science, right, has been a spectacular failure. I completely agree. Dr. Ken Berry will talk about what can be done to fight and diagnose Lyme disease. Sean Mills will talk about how you know when the power has been restored if you're using a generator. So you've shut off power uh, into the house and you're running a bypass uh, uh, cord with generator. And how do you know the power came back on so you stop running the generator and go back to normal? Uh, Doc Bones will talk about what we just learned about with phenylephrine, I guess is how you say it, and what it means to your medical prepping. I talked about this uh, about two weeks ago. Another example of the government not having a freaking clue what it's doing. Um, and this one's personal to me because occasionally I suffer from allergies, and this completely useless, useless substance is uh, what made a drug called Actifed go away, which actually was very effective and worked very well. Patrick Rohrman will talk about what it really means when you say you make a knife or a custom knife and a handmade knife and forging steel and how all that goes together. John Pugliano will talk about thoughts on tapping into retirement savings to buy a house. I bet you know that how that's going to go, right? And then I'm going to talk to you just a fun subject today, a little bit on some of the updates from uh, all the shows I've done on meat cutting and some things I've done here, and some meat curing things with something called Basturma, which is, well, it's better than I ever thought it would be, and I wanted you to know about it, so that's what I'll talk about today. With that, let's go ahead and uh, jump on into things, but I do want to remind you real quick, if you're coming to TSP 23 or you have somebody coming that can pick your books up for you, this is the last day, last one, close the business today, I want to put the order in with the bookstore for Jim Shockey to sign books uh, that are part TSP 23. Every paying student <clears throat> is getting a copy of the book signed and numbered, and they'll be numbered, you know, TSP 23, you know, one of, two of, three of, depending on how many there are. And uh, as I've said before, this is something if you have somebody in your life, you know, we're, we're going into Christmas season and stuff like that, uh, that's an outdoors person. Man, you can't hit a bigger home run than this. 
Talk about something totally unexpected, and you can only get it here. Again, though, I cannot individually ship books. This is for people coming to the event or that have someone that can pick it up on their behalf. A few orders here and there have come in, uh, multiple orders from a few people, basically. Uh, and that's a little reminder as well. I don't know what's messed up with PayPal, but it won't let you put in, like, quantity three or two or whatever, just one. So if you want to order more than one copy, just order individually more than one copy. We'll get it all worked out. With that, let's go ahead and hear from uh, Dr. Paul, Dan McAdams, and then Chris Rossini from the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights of the Week. The U.S. to keep paying salaries for tens of thousands, I think like it's, uh, uh, you know, 57,000 of Ukrainians during the government shutdown. But why? I, I'm really confused on this. If if we're having the shutdown because we're having budget trouble, but it looks like somebody thinks we have a budget surplus. So I, I think this is a bit of craziness, and I think the budget is not that good. And I think what they're trying to talk, talk us into here hurts Americans, hurts our national security, doesn't make any sense. It's unconstitutional. Otherwise, it looks like a good plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> well, let's put that up and look, because this is the outrage of the week or the month or the year. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and you know, and you've talked about it before. There's a bit of a charade about the shutdown. But the reality is, and we went through it, you get sent home and you don't get a paycheck when there's a government shutdown. Well, that's going to affect a lot of Americans. Whether we like having a lot of government workers or not is in a whole different story. The real point, Dr. Paul, as you said, is that if American workers get sent home because we don't have a budget, the Ukrainian workers, whose salaries we pay, will be just fine. And I had no idea until today. I suspected how many it was. But a newly aired 60-minute segment entitled The Unexpected Way American Tax Dollars Are Being Used in Ukraine has uncovered that the U.S. government is paying the salaries of some 57,000 Ukrainian civic services personnel. That I think Americans are going to realize this is an administration, and this is a Congress with a few exceptions, who is literally putting a foreign country, literally putting foreign workers ahead of American workers. And I think when that sinks in, a lot more people, the tide is already going in our direction against giving more money to Ukraine. But I think when people understand this, the problem is this proxy war, as you called it from the beginning, this proxy war has completely decimated the Ukrainian economy. And you remember in the days of Gulf War One, where the very smart advice from then Colin Powell, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, his argument against going into Baghdad in the first Gulf War was, if you break it, you bought it. And that's why he didn't want to own Baghdad. And it was smart, because we've broken Ukraine, and now we've literally bought it, we're paying the salary of tens of thousands of people. And I think m Americans, when they go to this store, and, and I do it, I do a lot of shopping for the family. When I go there, I have a panic attack every time you check out because just buying one meal for a family is, is you know, 60, 70 bucks. It's insane. So I think American workers who are trying to struggle through this horrible economic situation, the gas prices, and they're going to look at, hold on a minute, I am in dire straits, and you're paying tens of thousands of workers overseas? <laughs> Yes, uh, we saw this week that the U.S. government's debt is now $33 trillion, up from $32 trillion just three months ago. So that's $1 trillion in debt in just three months. It took almost 200 years to get that first trillion, and uh, now it's taking three months. I mean, what are we going to be doing a show that it takes three weeks? 
to add a trillion dollars? I guess we'll see. But uh, what we're seeing, in my view, is the end of the progressive era government. You know, at the beginning of the 1900s, there was a major shift in the belief in the role of government of the United States. No longer was it a protector of liberty. Uh, it is now going to uh, progressively and scientifically uh, you know, rule all of society. And that's what it has done. That's what po people believe today that it should do. There are, it is the grantor of rights. So instead of rights being natural from our creator, it comes from government. And of course, people make up rights all the time. You read about them all the time. They believe they have a right to this and a right to that. Take care of my health care, my education, my kids in pre-K, social security, vax me up. From start to finish of your life, the government is your provider. And of course, this is a grand delusion. It's a very big one, as we see with the debt. Uh, it goes beyond what the people themselves believe, and it trickles into the minds of the politicians. They believe, yeah, we could do that. We could do all of this and more. We will take care of the entire world. We have a thousand bases peppered all over the planet. We will tell every country what to do. So what we have is a mass, mass delusion that is costing uh, trillions even faster. This will end badly, unfortunately, unless there is a major shift in the minds of the American people on what the role of government should be. It should not be that it is the the everything for everyone because it is leading us to bankruptcy. Well, you know, when I when I lay down in bed tonight, <clears throat> I will fall asleep a little more easily, knowing the tens of thousands of Ukrainians will be paid with U.S. stolen money, uh, even if we shut down the government and don't send like old people their Social Security checks. I, I will just sleep so much better knowing that because my democracy or something to that effect. Right. Uh, the next thing is on 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 Chris's segment about. The scientific rule by government, right? I can't agree more how awful this has failed and how how frightful it actually is, though. I am actually listening uh, to an audiobook right now by Jerome uh, Corsi, and it's called The Truth About Energy, Global Warming, and Climate Change. And I, I'm kind of at the part of it right now where they're going through how flawed the science is, how flawed this, this you know, AGW, anthropomorphic global warming science is, all these claims, and all of the things that get left out. And as I'm listening to it, I'm, I'm actually getting a lot of tie-in to things that I've learned in uh, a different book that's totally, you would think is totally unrelated. But it's uh, 1493 by Charles Mann, which is, of course, the sequel to 1491, which was, you know, the Americas before Columbus. And 1493, as you might surmise, is pretty much after. Uh, but it's pretty much a whole world after Columbus. And what I'm finding to be the, the unique tie together of these two is the Malthusian philosophy, which uh, is this this dude named, uh, named Thomas Malthus, who... It's kind of the originator of this, this, this theory of population growth is exponential in that in all situations, humans will outgrow their resources, and eventually that will lead to doom. And Malthus said this would happen with agricultural production, and man engineered his way around it. And this, this goes back 
uh, a, a very long time. Malthus originally uh, put this out in a, a thing called an essay on the principle of population. It's 1798. He proposed this hypothesis that human populations tend to increase. The happiness of a nation requires a uh, like increase in food production, and then eventually that will fail and it will end in this awful cataclysm. And even back then, there were you know people moving toward public policies based on this idea that we'll basically grow ourselves to death. And you know now we have basically neo Malthusianism, where we have these people that believe the human race is going to become extinct because we exhale a gas. And over and over and over, the science on this stuff has been conclusively proven wrong. Doomsday prediction after doomsday prediction comes and goes, and yet these people still maintain a stranglehold. And the reason it is terrifying when you really think about it is these people have a lot of power. The average idiot does believe whatever they're told, and a per and, and if these people actually believe what they're saying, in some ways they're they're more dangerous than if they don't. Because I would rather negotiate with somebody that robbed a bank because he wanted money that has some hostages than some religious zealot who has hostages because he thinks God told him to take the hostages. When when we deal with this this pseudo religion of, of worshiping science instead of seeing it as an error detecting process, instead we see it as an authority. Really harmful things uh, have been done and can be done by governments and probably shall be done by governments. Anyway, let's talk about something else. How about figuring out? Do I have Lyme disease? And if so, how, what do I do about it? Hello, TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Michael about Lyme disease. Uh, Michael's question is: What, in addition to a proper human diet, can be done to diagnose and fight Lyme disease? I have been keto since 2019 and have lost a lot of weight, but my energy hasn't seemed to go up with the weight loss. I am fighting some odd symptoms like low energy, wrist pain, skin issues, and anxiety-like symptoms. Blood tests show that all my metrics, including thyroid function and blood panel, are good. My naturopath has been putting me on various supplements with some success, but I think I might be fighting Lyme disease. I know Lyme is difficult to nail down with high false negative results from blood tests. I think I have a leg up in fighting this, being on a decent meat-based diet. But I wanted to hear your thoughts. Yeah, and so first off, congratulations on discovering that a proper human diet can treat hundreds of conditions, including、uh, acute and chronic Lyme disease. Now. The first thing we need to talk about is your symptoms.、Uh, your symptoms of low energy, wrist pain, skin issues, and anxiety-like symptoms. This could be ten different things, including Lyme disease.、Uh, so I'm glad you got your thyroid function checked. My first question would be: Did they check a full thyroid panel? And I think I've got Jack a copy of my book Common Sense Labs, but if not, I'll send him a copy so that he can. When you guys have questions about what's a full thyroid panel, what lab should I ask for, he can give that to you guys for free.、Uh, but the book is Common Sense Labs. It's now available on Amazon if you want to buy it for yourself. But this could this could be low testosterone. This could be hyperparathyroidism. This could be undi- misdiagnosed. 
uh, thyroid disease, depending on which thyroid labs they checked and which ones they didn't check. This could be an undiagnosed adrenal gland problem. This could be undiagnosed cancer. Don't freak out. I'm just I'm just trying to give you the full menu here of what it could possibly be. It could also be Lyme disease. And you're right, the, the, the testing, the lab testing for Lyme is notoriously uh, inaccurate and misleading. Uh, I would counsel you to get your testosterone checked. Make sure that you've got a full thyroid lab panel. Get your adrenal glands checked. Get your parathyroid glands checked. And uh, then also get all your markers for, for uh, inflammation checked. And I think in those labs, you might find your answer, and it might turn out to not be Lyme disease at all, keeping in mind that, that actual Lyme disease is really quite rare. So uh, I hope that this helps. Uh, absolutely eating a proper human diet, even if it turns out to be chronic Lyme, is going to make your symptoms much less severe and make your flare-ups much less frequent. Uh, in the meantime, keep learning about Lyme and also keep reading about other causes of the symptoms you're having because it's probably a 90% chance that it's not Lyme disease. Hope this helps. This is Dr. Barry. Talk to you next time. Good stuff from Ken. And Ken, no, I do not have a copy of that book, and I did not even know you had that book available. You should have told me, and I would have told people, and maybe you would have sold some more. Stop hating money and send me my copy of the book. Anyway, moving on. Uh, let's hear from Sean Mills about if we're running on backup power with a generator and we've actually shut power off from the grid, well, how do we know the power came back on? So that we stop running our generator and go back to grid power. Um, what Sean's going to say in the open is what I do. I look across the street to my neighbor that ain't got a generator. When their lights come on, I know they're back on. Uh, but there, there could be some other ways to do this. Hey, everybody. It's Sean Mills with HackMyHomestead.com. And today I've got an expert panel question from Richard. Richard says, generator question, how do you know when the power comes back on? Background, I have a large wheeled generator to run my whole house and put in a circuit breaker switch, but how do I know when the mains power returns? Thanks for all you do, Richard. Well, there are a couple different options for this. I'll cover the two easy ones first. Uh, the easiest one is to just look at your neighbor's house or if you have a street light on your street, and when the lights come back on, you know that the main power has been restored. Um, some power companies or utilities also have a service where they will send you a text message when the power, when there is a power outage and then also send you another text message when the power is restored. Uh, so that's another option. Now those are both pretty obvious and I imagine you didn't send this question in if either of those were an option. So here's the answer for folks that live remote or back in the woods and don't have the text service available. Um, and part of this is going to be exactly how you have your house set up. So if you have a transfer switch that only powers sensitive circuits, so you've got your main power panel and then you've got certain circuits that run over to a transfer switch and that's where you plug your generator in and basically you flip that transfer switch from mains power to generator power, crank your generator, plug it in, uh, and then the generator powers those sensitive circuits. Then you can just have a light that is on a circuit that's not part of the transfer switch and just leave that light on. And then when the light lights up, you know that the main power has been restored to the house. If you have an interlock device or uh, a whole house uh, transfer switch 
where it literally cuts from the main over to the generator input, then it's a little bit harder because you don't have any dedicated circuits that are running just off of the mains power. And so in that situation, what you want to do is you want to get a device that is going to measure the voltage on the incoming um, main power uh, to the main power lug. So in that scenario, wherever your main comes in, so basically the, the main trunk line that comes in from the meter itself, uh, there's a couple different devices out there on the market. Uh, Powerback is one of them. Uh, there's another one that you can find on Amazon. And uh, you just mount those right where that main uh, power comes in. And uh, one of them will just light up, so you can you can set them up to where it just illuminates a light. And a lot of these transfer switches will actually have something similar. Uh, as a matter of fact, some municipalities require uh, a main power light indicator on the transfer switch itself. Uh, so there's that. If you're if you're buying your own transfer switch and putting it in, or having an electrician put one in for you. Uh, you can opt to have one that works that way put in, even if it's not code in your area. Um, but basically, all these devices are doing is they're sensing voltage on that main uh, line that's coming in. And you can have one that lights up or you can have one that actually sends an audible alarm. So it beeps every you know couple of minutes or something. Uh, and so that those are probably the most fail-safe ways. Uh, I have seen people set up voltage meters that are tied into a Raspberry Pi uh, as part of like a home assistant uh, type setup where they'll get an email and or a text uh, when that voltage is sensed. So that's another option, something to look into. Uh, but there are several different devices on the market that will sense that voltage. Uh, you just have to utilize the one that works best for you in terms of do you want a light coming on? Do you want a... Um, uh, an audible alarm to beep, or do you want, you know, something special and set up with home automation to work like that? So hope that ha helps you, Richard, and answers your question. Uh, you guys keep getting those questions in to Jack, and I'll keep getting them answered. Thanks. I will say definitely with your power company, uh, or you may have like a regional authority if you have multiple power companies, see what is available with notifications. This is actually very helpful, not just with knowing the power is back on, but things like when do they expect to get the power back on. Uh, in Texas, ERCOT has made some mistakes over the years, especially with the big freeze of a few years ago, but overall they do a pretty damn good job. Uh, they maintain a map. As long as you have internet access, you can see where power is out, how many people are out. And they have really good uh, text-based updates that let you know things like, hey, your power should be restored by this time or it has been restored, things like that. So that may be available, and you may just not know it. So check again with your electrical provider if any alert services like that to your cell phone are available. Moving on, let's hear about a drug that's supposed to work that just doesn't. Thank you, federal government. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the greatly expanded fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. As cold and flu season approaches, families are stocking up on medications that take away some of the misery experienced by those infected by viruses. One of these medicines is phenylephrine, a prominent nasal decongestant on the market today. You may have been stocking up on over-the-counter drugs that contain phenylephrine for years, but recent studies indicate you might as well have been taking Skittles. 
A recent report by the FDA stated that phenylephrine, the active ingredient in many nasal congestants, is ineffective in relieving symptoms like runny nose. Phenylephrine arrived on the market in 2006 after another decongestant called pseudoephedrine or Sudafed was taken off over-the-counter pharmacy shelves. Why? It's an ingredient used in the making of crystal meth. After the passage of the Combat Methamphetamine Epidemic Act of 2005, pseudoephedrine disappeared from view. Since then, meth use is no longer a problem in the United States, says nobody. Hmm. More on that later. Drug companies quickly adjusted with the manufacturer of Sudafed putting out a new product with a similar name, Sudafed PE, but with phenylephrine as the main ingredient. Others followed suit with their own products. And now, there are probably a dozen such products popular enough that I'll bet that some are actually in your medicine cabinet. Well, an FDA panel took a look at the original studies supporting the use of phenylephrine as a decongestant and decided that they were inconsistent. Indeed, phenylephrine turns out to be no better than a placebo, even if used in high doses. The panel reported this, We do believe that the original studies were methodologically unsound and do not match today's standard, and do not provide evidence that oral phenylephrine is effective as a nasal decongestant. The investigation of phenylephrine, according to MedPage Today, began as early as 2007 in response to a citizen petition. Big Pharma pressure held off the latest reports for more than 15 years. In that time, how much money have American families been spending buying an ineffective drug? A consumer survey of 100,000 households revealed that about half purchased meds containing phenylephrine over the course of a year. Interestingly, pseudoephedrine, the similar-sounding active ingredient in original Sudafed, is still considered very effective in the relief of nasal congestion and has always been available despite its utility in the making of methamphetamine. It's always been just behind the counter at the pharmacy. All you have to do is ask for it and not request 10,000 tablets. You're going to need to bring your driver's license as Sudafed purchases are documented. You're going to have to sign for them. Despite the FDA's panel report, the FDA at present still allows the purchase of phenylephrine products. While I expect them to eventually take products containing it off the market, probably won't happen for a while. That means you're going to have to look at the ingredients list of your medicine cabinet's nasal decongestants. You might even have some products there that are shooting blanks. Someone in your family is probably going to catch a cold or maybe worse in the next few months. The smart family medic is going to stock up on pseudoephedrine, not phenylephrine. Just ask the pharmacist for original Sudafed, the real deal. It's still over the counter, just behind it. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, get your family medically prepared for the uncertain future with one-of-a-kind medical kits, books, and individual supplies from our entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So this is actually a place that pisses me off beyond just the obvious that the federal government's uh, FDA approved a drug that is doesn't work at all. It doesn't work at all. It just doesn't work at all. Uh, but there's another side to this. Uh, most people are familiar with the drug known as Sudafed. Well, there is a there is another drug that is still around. Don't send me emails telling me I can still get it. I know I can get it. It just doesn't work worth a fuck anymore. Uh, it was called Actifed. And so if we go all the way back to, like, late 70s, early 80s, Actifed was available by prescription only, and Sudafed was available over-the-counter. Actifed had the same Sudafedrine in it, same amount as a dose of uh, Sudafed, but it also had a second, and I'll probably say it wrong, a second drug in it called triplodoin hydrochloride, a little tiny amount of it, 2.5 milligrams. 
And that made all the difference for people that suffered with allergies, which I did at the time as a kid. Uh, I know now as an adult, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's something very much endemic to Florida that causes me to have an allergic reaction where my nose is just congested, I can't breathe, etc. It happens once in a while here, but it's very, very, very rare for me. So it doesn't directly affect me like it did at one time. But when they took this away, I lost an extremely valuable medication. Because what Actifed did, uh, the people that own Actifed said, well, we don't, we don't want to sell from behind the counter. Our sales will hurt. So the people that made Actifed not only dropped the Sudafedrine, they dropped the other medication, came up with a completely uh, new formula, which, by the way, like I always said, it doesn't work because it doesn't work. Um, and, and, and many people who were able to deal with allergy issues with Actifed were no longer able to do it. So that's the government helping, and it's this cascade of effects. That's what I'm hoping that people start to realize with the pattern recognition that I'm always talking about. Everything these people do has this whole litany of unintended consequences. Yes, it's harder to make meth now. You know what we have, though, in the country far more than we ever did, though? Fentanyl. When you when when we go in and we mess with all of like people's individual rights and freedoms, we screw everything up. And, and they never had to put it behind the counter. They never had to put it behind the counter. Trust me. All they had to do, if they were really worried about what they say they're worried about, all they had to do was put a limit on how much you could buy. You can buy one box at a time or two boxes at a time because that's not enough to make a whole bunch of meth out of. But, you know, they, they under the uh, war on drugs idea, which you, they've done nothing really to stop drug use. Everything is worse than it's ever been. We have more people dying of overdoses now than any time in history. But, you know, we, we, we crack down on, on the ability to go make meth out of Eckerd drugs. Yay us. It's, it's, it's positively ridiculous. So now you probably know more than you ever wanted to. But, yeah, that second, uh, uh, that tript, tryptoloidine, uh, hydrochloride, that stuff was magic. And I don't know why they got rid of it. Uh, it however, maybe the reason would be that you know, on its own it's not really great. Maybe it's like a uh, force multiplier when combined with pseudofedrine. And for those that want to, you, know, you can still get the pseudofedrine. It it never did shit for me without that second ingredient. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, hear about forging knives from Patrick Rorman. Hey guys, this is Patrick here with MT Knives, coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. Today's question I've had from multiple individuals, and I'm going to cover it and kind of dive deep into what I believe is the the underlying question that they want to know and uh yeah let's dive into it so the question is is do you forge your knives so when people ask do you forge your knives i think you know sometimes they're just curious like what is the process of of making knife a knife look like and but i think a lot of times when they ask that question it's because they feel like if you don't forge a knife, then you're not really making a knife. And I say that because I've been in that same position where I felt the same way. So I'll tell you a story. When I was younger, my dad bought me my first custom knife. I'll tell you what, I was so excited to have a custom knife that my father had bought for me. 
It was a skinning knife. It had a beautiful leather sheath that would uh, go on your belt. Had a guard that went kind of wrapped around the handle. Had a snap that held the knife securely in the sheath. Had my initials on the sheath and on the knife. And it was just a beautiful knife. It was a skinning knife. Had a gut hook. And it's kind of, you know, like a rite of passage when you get something like that from your father. Um, it's just one of those things that you'll always remember. Well, fast forward years later, I start making knives. And I look back at that knife my father gave me. And I realize that at that time, I no longer would have considered it a custom knife. And the reason being is the knife was more than likely a blank that was bought from some company like knifekits.com where somebody just buys a knife blank that's already been you know it's already been drilled it's already been profiled and it's already been ground may or may not be sharp and then you attach a handle to it you know sharpen it make a sheath and you're good to go so at this particular point in my life i felt like well that's not really a custom knife well, I'm going to tell you another story. I had a customer that came to me and wanted me to make him a custom knife. And he told me that he had had, he, you know, I kind of seen some of his collection. And he told me about this knife that he commissioned another maker to make for him, which was supposed to be a custom knife. And it was his design. And he wanted this maker to make him this really cool design that he had come up with. And he wanted a one-of-a-kind knife. And so the maker agreed, made the knife. He got the knife. He loved it. Well, the maker also loved the design and went on to make that design for other people. And he felt really betrayed and um, felt like he sold the knife. Like he was he was upset because it no longer was a one of a kind custom knife. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, is there are many degrees or opinions of what someone would consider a custom knife or a handmade knife and all these terms are kind of loosely used with little definition or regulation as to what classifies a custom knife a handmade knife you know so it but it's a question that i you know i i can appreciate because i've been there i wanted to know the same questions myself and what it really comes down to is is a maker being honest and genuine about the processes that go into making a knife or are they trying to deceive their customers and sell them a bill of goods and it's one thing that irritates me to no end is i see all this advertising and propaganda <laughs> or you know i see these makers doing this and selling something and typically it's not it is there are small makers doing this but typically is some of your bigger companies, right? Um, they use buzzwords that people know, like Damascus or just you name it. Um, things that people have heard that they repeat. Another common one is, is your knife a high carbon steel? Because I know high carbon steel is good. Well, don't get caught up in these buzzwords that people are using to sell you something that's not really quality so when i started out making knives i started out learning traditional japanese style bladesmithing because i felt like that was truly making a knife and i learned how to forge knives how to heat treat them how to temper them the process from start to finish 
And I enjoyed that. The problem is, is without years of experience, years of practice, is you're going to have good days, you're going to have bad days, and you're not going to have consistent results. And if I'm going to sell a product, I want to know that the product that I sell is good. And I want to be able to verify it, test it, and know, that have a known quality that I'm, that I'm putting out. And so that is why I transitioned to stock removal blades with known material and uh, heat treat processes that are dialed in and repeatable. So there's still a tremendous amount of work that goes into making a knife with, that is not forged. And even if you forge the knife, you still have to go through all the processes to make the knife. Forging is only one step in the process of making that knife. So anytime somebody asks me, you know, do you forge your knives? I kind of cringe because I kind of know what they're asking. So the question that, you know, the answer is no, I don't forge knives anymore. Um, and I say that with a caveat, I, I do enjoy forging. I will do more forged knives in the future, but 99% of what I do is stock removal blades. I do it for the repeatability. I do it for, um, just having a product that I know and I can stand behind and say, Hey, this product is going to perform the same time after time after time again. There is a time and a place for forged knives. And, uh, you know, if that's what you want, if you want a forged knife, you know, go out there and find one. I can tell you this much. Um, when it comes to quality, I feel like very few makers that are forging knives are going to have... Um, I think there could be a very good possibility in getting a bad knife. And not only that, too, um, I want knives that people can use and don't have to maintain. There's a reason that, um, not that they don't want to maintain, that requires less to maintain them. So traditionally, you're not going to be forging a lot of your stainless steels, um, or stain-resistant, corrosion-resistant steels. Traditionally, if you're forging, it's going to be high-carbon steel. Um, and the problem with that is most customers aren't going to take care of it. Most customers, it's going to rust. It's going to you know, end up rusty and not taken care of. So there's that caveat as well, is that um, most customers do not take care of knives that are high carbon steel. There are some that do, but even myself, I have knives that uh, are high carbon steel and they stay in the safe. And, and, and even in the safe, I pull them out and sometimes I'll have spots of rust that I have to clean up and take care of. So there's lots of reasons that I chose to do stock removal blades. I no longer look at... Uh, a knife that hasn't been forged is not custom or not handmade. Um, and I really like forged knives as well. I just know that more than likely I'm not going to be purchasing uh, too many forged knives because 
I do know that they are they they have to be baby. They're gonna a lot of them are gonna rust if you not take care of them. And um, so I use my knives. I'm gonna get out there. They're gonna they're gonna get dirty. And so I really like the steels that I use, the quality that's there. And so that's what I sell. So anyways, I hope you guys have enjoyed this deeper dive into a question of do I forge knives? If you have uh, any other questions you'd like to know, I'm happy to answer them. Once again, this has been Patrick Rohrman with MT Knives. Interesting take from Patrick. I, I've always kind of looked at it as if it's custom, I ordered it and it was made for me to some level of specification that I can't just go to a website and pick options. I don't care if it's knives, I don't care what a gun, anything. If it's custom, then something about it is just for me. The story he told about the guy that started making the knife based on the knife he made for a customer, that's kind of, I don't know, do you really own a shape? You know, but, but to me, if... If it was, if I was that knife maker, I would have first had a conversation with the guy about it in the beginning. If I thought I'd like to make that pattern, and then I would also say like, we're going to do something with your knife that I'll never do again. The, the handle material I'll never use on this particular knife, or uh, the pins, or something about it will be unique and custom and only yours. And if you're not okay with that, then I'm not the right person for this project. And I think the idea that you could ever order a knife from somebody and have it built, and if it was really that great of a design, it would ne nobody else would ever do it. Once the shape is out there and somebody's seen it, knife makers are constantly making knives that, you know, who owns the right to the buoy pattern or whatever, you know? Um, and I, I do see a lot of times if, if a maker is ethical, they'll say it's a pattern by, you know, Bob so-and-so or something like that, uh, which I think is fine. But I, I, I wouldn't get too rolled up about this. I don't think that it is in any way a shortcut to use material removal versus forging uh, it, it may be a shortcut. I don't think it makes it anything less custom. I think if you're using blanks that are machine made by somebody else, then you are decorating a knife frame. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. And it's a great way to learn the process. And if I had something like that from a family member or something, I would still be like, wow, that's great that they, they made this for me. But I think if you are a custom knife maker, you probably are at minimum doing material removal uh, and you're the one taking care of that instead of buying some off-the-shelf product. But I think, it, I think it still could be custom. If it's made for you to your specifications, then you know it's how much are you willing to pay for how much customization do you want. Anyway, moving on, let's hear from John Pugliano. Somebody's thinking about raiding the retirement account to buy a house. Have a great day. P, well, I got a lot of questions in the hopper. I'm going to get to those over the next few segments. Today, though, I want to spend some time answering a question that I think is really important. I hear it a lot, and the answer I'm going to give isn't necessarily a popular one because I stress being frugal because I think the answer is not about the nuts and bolts of plugging something into Excel and coming up with the optimum answer that takes into account all the financial elements. I think it's much more important to focus on developing frugal habits where you learn to live well within your income limits and the resources you have available. So here's Michael's question. He wants to know what are the pros and cons of withdrawing investment funds to buy a house. Now I'm going to go in and modify his question a little bit because he specifically uses the phrase withdrawing investment funds to buy a house. And really what he's asking about is tapping into his retirement money to buy a house. 
to me, that's a totally different question. You know, as you're saving up to either buy a house or to upgrade to your next house, to the extent that you're investing and saving money and having it grow until you find the house you want or until you have enough money and then tapping into that, well, yeah, that's the whole purpose of investing, to save up to buy for a house. On the other hand, you often hear me say that money's fungible and it doesn't matter where you take it from because you're just moving money around. But the one place that that's different is when it comes to retirement savings, and that's for two main reasons. One is because of the way the tax code is written. If you have money in an IRA, a Roth, or a 401k, well, that money is getting special tax treatment. It's either growing tax-free or tax-deferred. And when you combine that with the other major factor, which is the miracle of compounding interest, well, that's where the whole magic of time value of money plays out. Because wealth is generated when money can grow over time, and especially when it's not being taxed. If you raid your retirement accounts to purchase anything, then you're literally degrading the forces that are helping you to build wealth. You have to think of investing and saving in multiple buckets. When it comes to saving and investing, I try and encourage people to not be myopic. And just like you're diversified in your investment portfolio, you should also be diversified in the areas where you're building wealth. So, yes, you absolutely want to own a home and be building wealth in your home and your real estate. But you're not doing that exclusively. You have to do that in parallel with other things, you know, things like building your career and specifically investing for your retirement and your old age. And so these are congruent parallel things. And the big mistake that people make is that they ignore one or more of those areas. And they think they're going to catch up and make it up later on in their life. But because I mentioned about the time value of money and the miracle of compounding interest, it's just like planting a tree. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. And that's the same with saving in all these different areas. Rather than trying to just focus and build up one area, you're much better served if you have the discipline to consistently, a little bit at a time, Build up each of those reserves in your real estate, in your retirement fund, into your emergency fund, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we could nitpick and get into the pros and cons of, you know, whether you have to pay a tax penalty for taking the money out or, you know, with a Roth, you can withdraw any principal that you put in there tax-free, penalty-free. But the bottom line on all this is think of it in terms of a debt consolidation loan. Oftentimes, you'll see people that are really broke and they've run up a lot of consumer debt. They'll try and rationalize their way out of the problem by saying, you know, hey, I can take this $50,000 of 20% credit card debt and I can take a $50,000 home equity loan and consolidate all that debt and only have to pay 7% instead of 20% on the credit card. And it sounds good and it looks good if you put it into Excel. But the problem with that is that it's just robbing Peter to pay Paul. And ultimately, the psychological factor works against you because those same people, you know, six months later or maybe a year or two later, they didn't address the problem, which was their spending habits. And so they've again gone into a whole lot of consumer debt. They've run up their credit card bills and they still have that second mortgage on their home that they consolidated the debt to begin with that they've still never paid off. Now, in your case, it looks like when you sell your existing home, you're going to come out with about $115,000 of equity that you can put in for a down payment on the next house. 
And I know interest rates on home loans are in excess of 7%. They may even go higher in the near term. And that's why you're looking at pulling some money out of your retirement accounts to bring down that monthly payment. But what I would really suggest is you moderate how much you're going to spend on that next house. You know, maybe buy more of a fixer-upper, something that you can improve with sweat equity over the years, or, you know, buying a property that's less developed where you can add on to it as you grow and save your income. Now, I know that sounds harsh and very frugal, but I say that because in my line of work, I constantly see people that are house poor. They buy into a mortgage that's at the max of what they can possibly afford, and then you see what's happened over these past few years with property taxes just rising at alarming rates, and people are finding out that they just can't afford to live in their houses anymore. And I think the future is going to be full of not only ever-increasing property taxes, but also much higher costs for utilities, you know, things like electricity, natural gas. You know, I just don't see any of those commodities getting cheaper in the future. So my recommendation isn't popular advice. It isn't what most people want to hear, but I would encourage you to definitely not tap your retirement savings and find a way to have much more frugal shelter and living expenses than maybe what you're currently thinking. Okay, again, I spent a lot of time on this question because I wanted to de-emphasize of just looking at the cost-benefit analysis of, you know, what's the tax penalty or what's the mathematical financial consequences and specifically focus on the aspect of human behavior. People look at me and they look at the position I'm in and they want to have the type of financial freedom and security that I have. But what they don't realize is that this didn't come easy. I spent a lot of years living a very frugal and, in some case, cheap lifestyle well below my means, and I would never be in the position I'm in today if I hadn't lived that disciplined lifestyle. And even now that I have the resources where I can live a much more extravagant lifestyle, I choose not to do that because, to me, the most important thing about having wealth isn't the consumer products that you can buy with it, but it's that you can buy your own freedom. Well, hey, I got a little philosophical in this segment. I appreciate the questions. Until next time, this is John Pagliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast. Uh, in general, I agree with everything John said about this, with an exception, and that is that the way some things are going right now, it may be the difference between being able to get a house or not. And if you're doing it intelligently and you know why you're doing what you're doing and you have a plan to make up paying the money back to yourself and you're willing to commit to that plan, I, I can't fault somebody. I, I, I tend toward where John is like, you really shouldn't do this, but I can't fault the person who says, you know what, I own a house now because I did this. And without that, I would never own a house because it is a really great way to build wealth into your life is property ownership. And the people that say, you're just renting it because you have to pay taxes on your property, and that means you'll never own it. Shut up and go ahead and pay my tax for me as your landlord. That's how I respond to that every time, and it will never, ever, ever change. Let's move on to talking a little bit about um, some stuff I've been doing with the meat cutting and meat preservation lately. I just thought it would be a cool update for you guys on a Friday. So when I did, I think it was the first meat cutting show that I did, I talked about some shortcuts, some things instead of buying really large primals and everything like that that you can do, uh, that you can sometimes just get right from the grocery store. Before I'll tell this story, I want to tell you that every time I've been into a grocery store in the past month, I have looked for this exact opportunity and haven't found it. 
I haven't found it. But I did yesterday. And what I'm talking about is finding a chuck roast that is the first roast cut off the whole chuck, uh, the, the, uh, the chuck roll. Okay, which is the which is the upper shoulder kind of neck area uh, blade removed. You can buy that whole uh, subprimal again. It's called a chuck roll, and you can do a lot with it. But when it goes to a grocery store, a lot of times what they'll do, especially when they have chuck roast on sale, instead of parting it out in any meaningful way, they just lay that sucker down and they start cutting like four inch thick roasts just sliced straight out of it. And that first cut, and this is something I've, I've seen more and more lately, is because people are more in tune with what chuck eyes are now, which chuck eyes are basically a ribeye for less money. They aren't that much less money anymore. And what's happening is a lot of these gro grocery stores, they're taking that chuck, they're removing the chuck eye, and they're selling it separately because they make more money. I would too if I were them, but I don't like it. But when they're doing chuck roast sales, a lot of times they just need to keep a certain amount of it out there. So yesterday I went in, there was a really nice chuck roast uh, that was on sale. There was actually three or four of them in the bin that were at the sale price, but only one of them was that first piece. Anyway, this thing would normally have been like $7.50 a pound um, for the chuck roast. It was on sale for $3.77 a pound. So I looked and I'm like, okay, there's one with the chuck eye. So I grabbed it. And uh, I brought it home. It took me about five minutes to cut it up. I did a little video putting some pictures and stuff together on this and put it out on my TikTok if you want to look at it. Um, but the bigger thing was, well, how much did it really save me? So it was a little over four pounds. And this is what I got out of it. I got about 1.6 pounds of chuck eye steak, two big, thick chuck eye steaks. I priced chuck eye steaks at the same Albertsons that I bought this thing from, and that would have been $16.78. So right there, I paid $15.34, and everything else is free that I'm about to tell you. And this is by doing five minutes of knife work. I got 14 ounces of Denver steak. I priced that at being $9.62 in value because I based it on the price of sirloin because you can't buy a Denver steak. Uh, but let me tell you, a, a sirloin is a good steak, but it's hot garbage compared to a Denver steak. Denver steaks are wonderful, so I got two little 7-ounce Denver steaks out of it. I got a pound of uh, basically boneless short rib is, is how it's treated in restaurants, so that's what I'm going to call it. Uh, that was worth about 8 bucks. And those guys right now are in my little mini crock pot cooking with some red wine and garlic and shallots and all that wonderful stuff. Nice slow. I've been kind of craving those. So I could have made that into more Denver steak, but I ended up making it into short ribs because it just didn't look like sometimes when you cut meat, you're like, that's not going to steak really well. I'm going to do something else with it. Plus, like I said, I've been craving them lately. I don't know why. Maybe because I'm craving winter or fall to come and actually break the heat. And I got about 10 ounces of trim. And I figured that was worth about $3.75 based on the price of, like, mid-tier ground beef. All in, that's $38.15 in value. I paid $15.34. I came out ahead $22 in, by doing five minutes of work. And I got, I'm telling you, I ate those Denver steaks last night. Oh, my God. They're so freaking amazing. They're one of the best steaks available and they're a piece of a roast, and you just treat them a little bit differently. I personally did them about an hour and a half in, sous, in the sous vide at 135 degrees. I let them, because they're a fairly thin steak, uh, I let them cool down quite a bit before I seared them off. So that if you get something out that's kind of thin, 
and you brought it to 135 and you go to sear it, you're going to take it right up into the 140s and over overdo it. So I let it come down in temperature for about uh, 15 minutes after I removed it from the sous vide before searing it in some butter with some rosemary and thyme. Oh, my God. So, again, that's a profit of, of $22 in value on something I paid $15 for. And so I just wanted to give you a real-world example because I did two really long shows on this, but that gives you concrete numbers. Now, like I said, I have been to several grocery stores since I did that show, and if they've had Chuck on sale, they have not had a good roast to pull apart like that. But if you check when it happens, and I'm going to tell you right now, had there been four of them I don't, at that price, that's... You know, that's a three seventy a pound. That's buying the whole damn chuck roll price, and you're getting the premium piece of it. I would have bought all of them. I would have parted it all up. I would have vacuum sealed it. And what I did with the chuck eyes, you know, because my wife's gone this week with the kids. By the way, I, I need to put this video up. I got this amazing video from her. Uh, they're staying near Canyon Lake, and the two kids feeding deer by hand. So anyway, just proud grandpa moment there. Um, the chuck eyes, I want to say for my wife. So. Uh, I took them, I put salt, pepper, onion, garlic powder on them, put them in uh, uh, vacuum seal bags, cryovacked them, labeled them, threw them in the freezer. When it's time to cook those, I'll pull them straight out of the freezer, straight into the sous vide machine, done. From frozen, an hour and a half later, we'll be ready to sear them off. It's a really easy way to go, and we're saving money, too. The other thing I want to talk to you about is this basturma, bastrama, I don't know exactly how to say it, this Turkish play on, you know, um, pastrami, I guess is what they say, but this is totally different than pastrami to me. Traditionally made with, like, beef tenderloin, if you want to make the expensive version, or the cheap version is made with eye of round. It can also be made with pork, and I, I've done that. I've got uh, two whole eye of rounds cut into two pieces each, so four big chunks of eye of round hanging in one of my refrigerators right now. They probably need to hang for about another week before they get coated with something called the chemin, which I'll tell you about in a second. Uh, and so hopefully I will not eat all of that, and all of that will be available at the workshop. That's my plan right now. We'll see if we can do it. Because I also made a pork tenderloin into one as a quick one, uh, started about two weeks ago. It's gone. It's gone. And the chemin is basically a paste, and there's a bunch of ingredients, but the two main ones are fenugreek, which is a, a – it's – some people call it herb. It's really a legume, and it's like a little seed, and you grind this stuff up, and paprika. And then there's some, uh, people use cayenne. I just use crushed red pepper, garlic, and, and some a little bit of salt and everything else. And when the thing's hung long enough that it's it's cured to the point where it's ready for it, you take this chemin paste, and you coat it, completely coat it, and then you hang it for a few more days until it completely dries out. Oh, my God, it's addictive. As much as I love biltong, this is another level. This is like you eat a piece of it, and then the flavor of that Greek and the black pepper and the meat and the salt and the paprika, and it's just, it stays in your, and you're like, I, I, I got to get another piece. Um, I will put a link in the show notes today of a sh short one-minute video that tells you how to make this stuff. It's exactly the video I followed to do it. If you want to start curing meats and you want to start kind of the easy way where it's not going to take you six months and you got to worry about perfect humidity and all this is a great way to go this is an absolute great way to go and anyway i just followed this one minute video 
Everything worked perfectly. Definitely worth giving a shot to. I'm telling you, it's one of the best things I've ever eaten, period. Anyway, guys, hope you guys enjoyed that. If you did, let me remind you, there's two ways you can support this show. One is do your online shopping starting at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Start your shopping there. You can find all my reviews. You know my brand is integrity. If I recommend it, I've spent my own money on it, and I, w- I would not recommend you buy it had I if I wouldn't buy it again myself. I mean, that's just how I've always run T-Spaz. It's all stuff that, you know, like you come to my house, it's like a T-Spaz catalog in real life. Uh, so you know you can trust the recommendations there, and you'll support the show even if you don't buy something from the catalog. As long as you start your shopping there, you help us out no matter what you buy. The other way is become a member of the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get your money back. You you become a member, it's 50 bucks a year, you use the discounts, you will more than get your money back. And that is like how I designed that as well from the very beginning. Like why would you ever quit using a product that pays for itself and then some? I've heard from some people that say they make several hundred dollars a year at least in profit by using my membership. So consider becoming a member if you're not already a member. Remember, I do take Bitcoin. Uh, I take silver by mail, though nobody does that anymore. Uh, I take credit card, debit card, etc. online. Uh, you can learn more. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com forward slash members. One more time, real quick. Remember, if, you, if you're coming to the workshop or have somebody coming that can pick it up for you, if you want extra copies of Jim Shockey's book, you need to get that order in by the end of the day today. And that's, that's Friday the 29th. If you're listening to this in the future, it's too late for that. Anyway, guys, take care. I'll catch you on the other All side the of the weekend with another episode. American way a dollar down a dollar a month and you never have to pay there's a better way to do this let me show you a better way Yeah.